John chapter 20 and verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the, the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can meet uh, in this place in safety and security to study together, to be family together. And just pray, Father, as we just for a few moments just look at this passage again, maybe familiar passage, familiar story. Would you stir our hearts and challenge us through it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this, this passage today um, from John's Gospel um, 
It's a bit like it's a bit like a play in three parts, in three acts that unfolds. Um, it's a play about people searching about sadness and fear, about action, surprise, and joy. And it's a it's a story. It's an account that takes us full circle back to the beginning of John's Gospel. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, you, you may remember it's, it's, a, it's a passage that's often read at Christmas, one of the Christmas readings. In the beginning, that's the first bit of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. And in a sense, we get to chapter 20 of John's Gospel, and it's a new beginning. It's a brand new beginning. I'll explain that in a moment. The scene opens um, with this solitary figure, Mary, walking through the darkness. John's Gospel is a book that um, uses the images of light and dark a lot, the kind of contrary images of light and dark. And here we see Mary Magdalene breaking through her fears, her disappointment, her pain, to tend to the body of her teacher and friend. We can only imagine what it must have been like for some of those disciples at the time. They'd followed Jesus um, most of them for around about three years when Jesus started his earthly ministry they'd given up virtually everything many of them for him to follow him they'd watched him do incredible miracles they'd watched him heal people they'd watched him heal people with uh, unbelievable deformities people who were blind that was a real messianic sign they believed that there was something remarkable about this man that yeah probably he maybe could be the Messiah the chosen one the one sent by God who was going to set us all free the one who's going to bring God's kingdom reign on earth. They put their hope in him. They'd invested their time, their energy. Many of them had left their families, their jobs to follow him. We know that from the accounts in the Gospels. And then suddenly, you know, a week ago he was riding into Jerusalem, like we said last, last on Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem with everyone cheering him, waving their palm branches. Glorious scenes of celebration and joy because here was the king coming to kind of claim the crown to be the king of kings, to be the king of Israel. And a few short days later, those same voices are calling for him to be crucified. And all his, all his followers are bewildered. What's going on? This is, this is not how it was supposed to end. This person we trusted in, this person we'd given our lives to, we've watched him brutalized, going to a cross without even complaining, without offering any, any answers, without defending himself, just going like a lamb to the slaughter. And maybe they were holding on for hope. You know, even on the cross, God would come down with mighty armies of angels and deliver him and the, and the Romans would see. And, but no, they watched him die. They watched his heart literally break, as I said last week on the cross, as they put the spear in his side and water and blood came out. That sign of literally the heart tearing in two under the burden of what he carried on the cross. And then they watched him wrapped up and put into a tomb. This wasn't a man who just passed out. This was a man, Romans were professional killers. This was a man who had died and was buried. And so here she is, going on the Sunday morning to go to his tomb, to try and find some sort of solace. With the crowds dispersed, she would have been afraid, perhaps, of being recognized as one of Jesus' followers. Although, like most of the women we seem to see in the New Testament, had more boldness than most of the men who were hiding away in locked rooms. The women were there at the cross, 
going to the tomb, following Jesus when many of the men had gone away. And here she is going to the tomb, bewildered, lost, feeling abandoned, to tend to the body of her teacher and friend. And when she gets there, the stone's been rolled away. And so she immediately jumps to the conclusion that someone's entered the tomb and stolen Jesus' body. It's really interesting. Do we know she actually even looked in the tomb? Do we, think, do we know whether she went in the tomb? Well, we're not told. It seems that as soon as she saw the stone rolled away, she leaps to the conclusion about Jesus' body going. You know, perhaps too for us, for you and me, sometimes we're really quick to leap to certain conclusions about what God is doing or God has done in our lives or in others' lives. Perhaps we don't see the full picture, but we quickly assume that we understand what's going on. And here, Mary is bewildered, traumatized, and runs back to tell Peter and the others what she thinks has happened. That's Act 1. Act 2. Peter and this other disciple, the unnamed disciple, intriguingly identified as the one whom Jesus loved, they both rush to the tomb. Seems like maybe Peter's a bit older. He gets there a bit later probably panting as he gets there, this young, energetic, enthusiastic disciple sprints to the tomb, looks in but doesn't go in. But typical Peter, he arrives out of breath, probably a bit exhausted, but he goes straight into the tomb and discovers that it is indeed empty. And unlike the four-day dead Lazarus who stumbled out of his tomb just a short time before, wrapped in these grave clothes, wrapped around him, still wrapped up. The details given in John's account, it's really specific and really, really detailed. In, and we, we can see all about it. We're told that the wrappings have been kind of taken off. But the cloth, I don't know if you noticed, that was put over the head of Jesus and over his face, had been separately taken off and folded and put in a separate place in the tomb. There's really, really specific details. And even those details kind of would indicate that, kind of argue against the fact of Jesus just being taken, his body being taken. Because they wouldn't have taken his linen clothes off. They would have taken the body wrapped up. They wouldn't, certainly wouldn't have left them in a tidy fashion, rolled and neatly put in the tomb. What's going on? And they're bewildered. They're really confused. What's happening? Why have the cloths been taken off? Why have they been rolled and put here? I was chatting with someone today who was um, talking uh, to me about their father-in-law who was a judge. And he was saying that this was one of his favorite passages. Because for him as a judge, the detail that's in John 20 is so specific and so slightly bizarre that if it was presented to you in a court of law as a judge, he would always think, well, that must be true, because why else would I know that sort of level of detail? I'll come back to that in a moment. John tells us, John's Gospel tells us that the beloved disciple saw and believed. But what did he believe? It just says that, he saw and believed. We don't know. Could it be that he simply believed that Mary was correct? Yeah, the body isn't here. It's been stolen. Or did he believe that Jesus had done something remarkable? At the, at the Last Supper together, Jesus said, and perhaps had indeed, 
conquered the world from John 16? Did he believe that there was an inkling of something rising up in him, a sense of hope, and maybe, maybe, this, is, maybe this is what Jesus was talking about. I don't fully understand, but, but maybe, maybe there's something remarkable happening here. And Act 2 ends, the two disciples go home. It's interesting to reflect that at this point, there's no shouts of joy, there's no celebration. The emptiness of the tomb hasn't yet seemed to have made a difference in their lives. I wonder for how many people in our community, here in Whitcomb, in our city, in our nation, or in our families, that might also be true. That they're not able to feel the, re- the real deep joy, the sense of hope, the sense of certainty or expectancy on this Easter morning. For many people in our nation today, it's just another day off, but an opportunity to eat some chocolate. And for them, perhaps, the tomb hasn't fully, fully been understood. You know, I think for us as church, in the light of all that's happened this last week, that's happened in Belgium over recent days, and that's been happening globally over the last few weeks and months, particularly in the Middle East for such a long time, the great news of a resurrected Lord, the conquering of brokenness, of sin, of pain, the defeat of darkness is a message of hope that our world desperately, desperately needs to hear. And where are they going to hear it if not from the Lord's church, from us, from you and me? Our calling, I believe, is to share that good news. That's why we have our Easter celebrations. That's why we have our Easter services. It was great at St. Tom's this morning. It was packed. It was full. And it was great to be able to share the story of the resurrection say, look, this isn't just something we celebrate our tradition. We believe this is true. We believe this stuff. We believe that 2,000 years ago Jesus died and we believe that he came back from the grave. And you can look at countless lives around here to see that actually resurrection power transforms lives and hearts. It's God's power at work in his church today, miraculously changing hearts. When we heard... Steve shared his testimony a few weeks ago about a transformed heart from brokenness, from addiction, from cycles of uh, kind of despair and self-destruction. Can't change that. But Jesus can. Jesus can break into that and Jesus wants to break into it. Not just in Steve's life, but in all of our lives, in all of those areas of brokenness and pain and hurt and all those tendencies that often lead to destruction and pain. Resurrection power at work to bring breakthrough. God working. It's a message of hope for this world. So Act 2 finishes. These two disciples go home confused, maybe a bit hopeful, a bit uncertain, perhaps really sad that Jesus is now gone. But the focus in Act 3 returns finally to Mary. And she's bereft. She's absolutely distraught. Her master, her Lord, has been taken away. She's confused, and there she is standing outside the tomb. Except now, of course, it's not an empty tomb. Now there's two angels <laughs> who ask her, Why are you weeping? And she's like, Isn't it obvious? He's gone. My master, my Lord's been taken away. And then she hears another voice outside. Why are you weeping? Why are you here? What are you here for? And she, 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 she responds again to a man that she believes 
is simply a gardener in the garden. And I love John, and I love the way that God's Spirit weaves through Scripture in a way often we don't see or take in. Here she is, back in a garden, talking to a person she thinks is the gardener. And John takes us back to the beginning of, in a sense, this isn't the end of the story, Jesus' resurrection. It's a new story, a new beginning. We begin in John's Gospel with him saying, in the beginning. And now this is a new beginning. Because as Jesus opens and says these words, the first words that Jesus says in John's Gospel, in John 1.38, Jesus is talking to the disciples of John the Baptist. These are the first words that are recorded in John's Gospel. And Jesus says this to John's disciples. What are you looking for? John 1.38. What are you looking for? And now here in this new beginning, this brand new new creation, Jesus asks Mary the same question. Whom are you looking for? Who are you looking for? It's a new beginning, a new story. And maybe for you and me, that's a question that Jesus is asking us on this Easter day. We'll all be here for all sorts of different reasons. Maybe you're at church this morning. Maybe you used to go into church. Maybe church is something you occasionally do. But Jesus would ask that same question of you today. What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? In your life, in your job, in your your marriage, in your relationships, in your living inside and outside of work and home, Jesus would look at you now and say, what are, you, what are you looking for? What is it that you're searching for in your heart? Maybe it's someone you're looking for. Perhaps you just don't know. it. Maybe it's me. And you're not expecting to find me, but I'm right here. And then it says Jesus uses Mary's name. He says, simply says Mary. And at that moment, something clicks in her. And instantly, in a moment, she realizes through her tears, through her hazy eyes, she suddenly realizes who it is. It's her teacher, her Lord, her master, her friend. As Jesus calls her name, she recognizes him for who he is. And I think perhaps again, this Easter, for each of us, for you and for me, is an opportunity to hear again Jesus calling you by name. Jesus knows your name. He knows all about you. Maybe he wants you to encounter him afresh. It's a fresh invitation this Easter to, to friendship, to hope. John's Gospel is a little bit different from the other synoptic Gospels. They all begin at dawn. But as I said earlier, John's account begins in the dark with Mary. Did you notice that right at the beginning? It was still dark. And this is the writer who, right at the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning, talks about the kind of primordial darkness when the earth was formless, a formless void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep from Genesis. He talks about in the beginning when it was dark and there was just darkness. And back in Genesis, of course, there was the garden. And where do we find ourselves now? In a garden again. That first place in, in Genesis we read of, of course, with Adam and Eve, 
where humanity, colluding with the enemy, with the devil, destroyed our intimacy and our friendship with God. That first Adam, as they chose to disobey God's will, now, some many years later, in another garden, in Gethsemane, the second Adam, as scripture calls him, Jesus, having overcome the torment of temptation, denying himself and choosing instead to obey the Father's perfect will, undoes that damage of Eden, submitting to endure the shame, the pain, the crushing weight of the cross. And then here in this new garden, Jesus as the gardener is finally seen bringing a new world, a new life, a new creation into being. Just as he had done so long before at that first creation. It's almost like this day in the garden becomes like the eighth day of, 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 of creation. The resurrection becomes the eighth day of creation. Putting everything back into order as it was supposed to be. Restoring everything. Putting humanity back in a position where it could know God again. John 1, 3, verse 3 to 5 says this, of Jesus. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. See, Jesus was there at the beginning of creation when... The world was dark. The universe was a dark place. Jesus was there. And he shone as light in that first creation. And here now, the resurrection is an opportunity to undo all the brokenness of Eden. That, that first story, if you remember, in, in Eden, in Genesis, Adam and Eve are kind of driven out of the garden in tears and despair and shame. But in this new creation, in this new garden... Jesus sends Mary out of the garden rejoicing. Sent sent out to tell everyone that the darkness has not overcome the word made flesh who lived amongst us. I've seen the Lord. That's her message. And of course that's hilarious because at this time the testimony of women was completely irrelevant. It had no authority in law at all. I love the fact that Jesus turns the wisdom of the world upside down and says, who will most be believed when they first see me? I know, I'll send a woman. I think that's God's sense of humour. And also it's another reason that this judge would say, this points to truth, this whole account points to truth. If you were going to make up the resurrection, if you were going to kind of conceal his death and try and come up with a story, you would be mad to suggest that a woman would be the first person told to go and share the good news because everybody would laugh at you and say but part in our culture women have no legal authority their word is worthless for this judge it was compelling evidence that pointed to the fact that John 20's accounts in a court of law would be looked at as really believable because you wouldn't make these details up the specifics of these details Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus sends out Mary to go and tell the boys who are a bit thick and a bit scared, hidden away, that actually he's alive. He's risen. He's risen. So what about you and me? 
Well, it's interesting in this account. There's three disciples mentioned, aren't there? One sees the grave clothes neatly folded and believes. One sees the same thing when there's no indication what, at that point, he believes. And then one is surprised into believing by hearing the sound of her own name. And in a sense, as you look at these three characters, there's kind of perhaps mirrors of each of us at different times. And I think John's Gospel leaves room for us all at this point. For one who sees and believes, for another who sees but maybe leaves uncertain and unsure, and for one who needs to hear their own name before they can believe. It's all about you. What do you believe this Easter? When Jesus speaks to Mary, at first she doesn't recognize him because she's not looking for him. I think that's significant. She doesn't expect to see him or hear him. And I think it's amazing that so often God will break into our circumstances. See, Mary didn't expect him to be alive. But God's so gracious. He'll break into our circumstances at times when we just have no faith. At times when we just seem to be struggling with even the thought of any of this sort of stuff. And Jesus doesn't judge us and wait for us to sort ourselves out. He speaks our name. He speaks tenderly to us. He reaches into our hearts to unpick some of the things that are there. To move away the stone that's in front of our own hearts that hinders us from encountering the risen Lord. Mary's moment of recognition comes with the mention of her name and in a sense acts out the truth of John 10, 3-4 where it says, speaking of Jesus, he calls his own sheep by name and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. When was the last time you heard the Lord use your voice, call you by name? I know for me as I grew up, when I heard my name, it was always a bit nervous. It's because I'd usually done something wrong. Particularly if they said Timothy. That's when I knew I was in real trouble. And sometimes God wants to call us out and say, Look, I, I, I know you in the crowd. See, sometimes we, we feel as Christians or people around the edges of the fringes of the church, we feel like, oh yeah, God loves us. And we can kind of participate in that and feel that maybe we have a place within that. Yeah, that God sort of loves us. And that's true. But God loves you, specifically, personally, individually. He knows every single part of your life, your circumstances, your heart, your questions, your struggles, your joys, the things that make you laugh and the things that make you cry. He knows you by name and wants to call you. See, using a name, especially a first name, implies familiarity, intimacy, closeness. Do you know God like that? He wants to know you like that. We're supposed to have a relationship with God that goes well beyond a formal or institutional connection. He wants you to be his friend. And he wants you to know his friendship, his lordship. So what might he be saying to you tonight? Do you hear him using your name? Perhaps he's calling you to believe in him, to renew your commitment to him, to renew your hope in him. 
I want to close with um, a piece of prose that I, I've perhaps used before. Some of you may remember it, but it's a, wor- a passage kind of that I, I found a while back and just seems really appropriate on Easter Day. It's called Whose Hands? A football in my hands is worth about £10. A football in Messi's hands is worth about £75 million. It depends whose hands it's in. A guitar in my hands is usually pleasant. A guitar in Eric Clapton's hands is awesome. A stick in my hand is a plaything for a dog. A stick in Moses' hand will part a sea. It depends whose hands it's in. A small stone in my hand is a paperweight. A small stone in David's hand is a giant killer. It depends whose hands it's in. Two fish and five loaves of bread in my hands are some tuna sandwiches. Two fish and five loaves of bread in God's hands will feed thousands and thousands. It depends whose hands it's in. Nails in my hand might produce a garden shed. Nails in Jesus Christ's hands will produce salvation for the entire world. It depends whose hands it's in. So put your concerns, your worries, your fears, your hopes, your dreams, your families, your relationship, your life in God's hands. Because it all depends whose hands it's in. Let's pray together. As I was um, thinking about this service this week, I was recognising in my own life, there are times when we feel really tired or weak or struggling in faith. But I was reminded this week, and, and Sarah's just confirmed that, so just before I started speaking, saying that she felt God wanted to remind us that it's true that the same resurrection power that rose Christ from the dead is available and at work in those who love the Lord. So Father, I pray for each of us here, those of us who know and love you and are following you as disciples as best we can, for those maybe who are standing at a distance and and hoping to dare to believe this is true but are uncertain or making small steps towards you. May we experience your resurrection power at work within us. Would you stir faith and cause hope to arise? Would you fill our hearts and lives with a sense of joy and expectancy? Because you are the God who is able. You are the God of miracles. And you are the same God yesterday, today and tomorrow. And so we put our hope in you. We look to you. Jesus, when Mary met you at the tomb and suddenly understood who you were, her heart was transformed. Jesus, when you met those disciples in the upper room, men and women who were cowering away, afraid of the authorities, afraid of what might happen to them, but when they saw you, your resurrected body, when they saw your wounds in your side and your nail-pierced hands, when they saw you and ate with you and spent time with you and realized that you were indeed risen, you filled them with your spirit. They became a transformed people. And we and the global church are an inheritance, a flow of history of what happened in those days. Because a few people saw you and believed 
and shared the incredible news of a resurrected Lord. And countless lives through history bear evidence to the truth of resurrection power at work, bringing transformation. So Jesus, on this day, we look to you. We bring you our brokenness. We bring you our pain. We bring you our sin, our hurts, our wounds, our history, our shame, our guilt. And we bring you our joys and our gifts and our passions. And we yield them to you and say, Lord, would you use us for your glory? Would you help us to be light bearers in this dark world? To care for the least, the last and the lost. To reach out with arms of, and hands of tenderness and love. And to reach out, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. Our lives are home for your Spirit. So we yield to you. We honour you. And we ask for your resurrection power to fill us in this season. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.